0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. So come with me, please, to the, the 10th book of the Old Testament, Second Samuel, and the 11th chapter. 2 Samuel, chapter 11. story of David and Bathsheba this illicit affair that they're about to enter into was going to have devastating effects on both parties it was going to end up meaning the death of this little baby and also Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite and as for David it's going to be doubly devastating because his whole family from this point on is going to be in turmoil. And in fact, after this event, uh, David does no more exploits. Uh, This is the beginning of the end, really, of his great reign. And so let's look at it tonight and let's realize that when it comes to infidelity, infidelity, that the consequences are great. And if there's one story in the Bible that shows us that, it's this story here. So we need to listen and watch and learn. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab, who was his top general, and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon, and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. There was two times of the year when kings went out to battle, the spring and the autumn. Out in the spring, uh, after the long, hard winter, uh, when it was much more conducive for the battlefield, uh, not the hot heat of summer, and that's why often they would go out in the autumn time after the hot summer before the cold winter. So, this was one of those periods. And their ancient enemy, the Ammonites, uh, David's army has been fighting and have been winning the battle. In fact, the Ammonites now are besieged in their capital city and they're surrounded by David's army. And then we see that David remained at Jerusalem big mistake great error of judgment should have been out on the battlefield I don't know exactly why he didn't uh, perhaps he felt well I've got the greatest army in the world which he had and they're winning the battle which they were <coughs> so why bother why did they need me they're doing alright without me or maybe he thought to himself well you know He's about in his early to mid-fifties. Maybe he thought to himself, well, I've been, I have done many campaigns, and really, at my age, I don't really need another one, so I'll just stay at home. Or maybe he simply thought, well, I, I, I prospered well. My kingdom's in great order. Everything's hunky-dory. Uh, you know, maybe he'd gone a bit soft at this time in his reign. But for whatever reason, or maybe for all of those reasons, he remained at Jerusalem. And that was tragic, as we're about to see. Because then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. He should have been out at the battle, but instead he's on his balcony and he's looking out over his city, surveying his city, the city of David, as it would become to be called, that he had taken from the Jebusites many years ago. <clears throat> and while he's surveying his city in the cool of the spring evening, late afternoon, early evening, suddenly his eyes light upon Bathsheba who's bathing on her balcony on her roof now I think what we can say about Bathsheba was that she was very very foolish and very immodest to give her the benefit of the doubt she probably didn't think anybody could see her but seeing the king's palace was quite close it was within eyesight even if the king hadn't been there his servants would have been there and so it was foolish and it was immodest but when David set eyes on Bathsheba at that point he should have turned away if you were standing there you'd almost say David don't look again can't help the first look but he can help the second look and the third look and the lingering look but he kept looking. And one writer says that at that point, an unholy desire rose up in his soul, and he didn't deal with it. And it says, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Ah. Now at that point, he never should have sent for her in the first place. But at that point, when he heard whose wife she was, that should have stopped him in his tracks. Uriah the Hittite was one of his great warriors. David had 37 mighty men. These were his elite troops. These were the, the special forces that he had. And Uriah was one of the greatest ones. And he's out there fighting for king and country, putting his life on the line. And that should have been enough to stop David and say, what am I doing? My best men are out there, and this is one of their wives. But he didn't. Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. Now, of course, you understand that in those days the king had absolute power. How could she refuse coming with that invitation? Again, to give her the benefit of the doubt, she maybe didn't understand why he was sending for her. If she didn't know that he was looking at her, she probably wondered, why does the king want to see me? But when she got there, No doubt conversation ensued. And I can only surmise at that point in the conversation, he must have told her how desperately he desired her and how beautiful she was and how he had seen her that evening. And at that point, then Bathsheba has got a decision to make. Even though he is the king and has all power, She could have stopped it right there and then. Do you remember the story in Esther? How that Queen Vashti, the wife of Hashirah, the king, and at a drunken party, the king insisted that his wife get up and cavort in front of all these drunks. And she says, no, I will not do that. Under no circumstances, no way am I doing that. And she lost her throne and could have lost her head. So Bathsheba could have stood up to David and could have said something like that. She could have said, David, I can't do this. My husband is out there fighting for your kingdom. How could I dishonor my husband? And if we do this, it's going to dishonor your kingship. She could have said a lot of things, but she didn't. Maybe she was greatly flattered. Because David had lots of beautiful women. He had several wives. He had concubines. He had a palace full of beautiful women. And the fact that he sent for her and is flattering her, she must have felt wonderful at that point, thinking, boy, of all the beautiful women he's got, he's flattering me. He wants me, desires me. And so you can see how this can happen. But neither of them dealt with it. Both of them were thrown together and enveloped this thought. Then David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. And he lay with her. And then the Holy Spirit adds this. For she was cleansed from her impurity. Now, without putting too fine a point on it, 12 times a year, she would have been ceremonially impure and would have had to bathe herself. This is one of those times. So that tells us something else. That tells us what is going to result from this illicit union is definitely not going to be her husband's. It can only be David's. And then she returned to her house. <laughs> so, it's over. He's had his way. That brief dalliance, fling, whatever you want to call it, it's over. She goes back to her house with her guilty secret. Nobody's to know. David can get on with his life. It's just one more woman he's had his way with. So what? Both of them, I'm sure, thought, "Well, that's the end of it. He'll never send for me again. He's got loads of beautiful woman. The deed's done. It's over." But it wasn't. Verse five: And the woman conceived. So she sent. So she sent and told David, and said, "I am with child." Ah, the bombshell. Neither of them were expecting this to happen. Boy, now, deep trouble, big dilemma. What are we going to do? That brief, illicit moment of passion has presented both of them with a major, major problem. But David's clever, and he's the king. He'll find a way to deal with this. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war prospered. i'm sure uriah thought why is why is the king sending for me i'm not the general joab is if he wants to know how the war's going surely the general would be the one to tell him couldn't figure this out but david had a cunning plan hadn't he and david said to uriah go down to your house and wash your feet in other words, Uriah, you've been out in the battlefield, you've been fighting wonderfully well, you're one of my top soldiers, but you've been, out there, you've been missing your wife for weeks. Go down and wash your feet. That's a plight why I said, go down to your home and just spend a little time with your wife. You can, you can see what his mind's thinking, you can see what he's up to. Great plan, but it didn't work. So Uriah departed from the king's house And a gift of food from the king followed him. This is a big thing. For the king to send food to somebody's house is a big thing. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now here's a man with integrity. Here's a man who's just not going to play ball. Here is a soldier through and through. For he said, for this one. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? And why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in tents in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What integrity. Here's a humble man, great warrior. I can't do that. All my mates are out there putting their life on the line. I can't go to my house when they're out there without their wives. And so Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said unto Uriah, didn't you come from a journey? Why do you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are in camp not in fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife as I live? As your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Plan A doesn't work. Now we're in plan B. He got him drunk. Surely if he's drunk, surely he'll want to go home to his wife. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. <laughs> Here is a man who is blind, drunk, and he has more integrity, he has more morality in his little finger than this king who's stone cold, sober. And now nothing David saying is working. He cannot get this man to compromise. What a state he's in now. David's in a pickle. He's already broken the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. He's already broken the 7th commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. He's now about to break the 6th commandment, thou shalt not kill. See how easy it is when you start to break one commandment, how easy it is to break another one, another one, another one. And it just gets worse and worse and deeper and deeper. And so now he's in a fix. What is he going to do? And in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him so that he may be struck down and die. This is the lowest ebb of David's life. He could not stoop lower than this. This is the king of Israel. This is God's man. But that one thought on that roof has brought this man down to the point where he's going to get a man killed to hide his sin. You can hardly believe what you're reading here. So here's Uriah, and David gives him this letter sealed with the king's seal. Give that to your general Joab, not knowing that was his death sentence. He got Uriah to carry his own death sentence. How despicable is that? How awful and sinful is that before God? And so it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew where there were valiant men. I'm sure Joab wasn't happy about this because this was one of his great men. And they need all the best men. But maybe he thought, you know, for whatever reason Uriah has fallen out in favor with the king. Maybe he did something against the king I don't know. So I'm just a general, I just got to carry out orders of the king. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. Some of the people of the servants of David fell, so not only And and Uriah the Hittite died also, so not only did Uriah die, but some of the other soldiers died because of this. Then Job sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger, saying, when you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath arises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall, the most dangerous place? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Ah, the key piece of news. Joab was smart enough to know, Hey, I have lost a bunch of men because of this. But if you tell him Uriah the head is dead, he'll not care how many I've lost as long as Uriah is dead. That's the only thing he cares about. So make sure you tell him that. So the messenger went and came, told David all that Job had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate, the most dangerous place. And then the archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. Hmm, that's the news he's wanting to hear. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. Ah, those words are going to come back to haunt him. Because God was very displeased, greatly displeased with this action. For the sword devours one as well as the other. How true that is, and how true David was going to find that to be. Because the sword was going to devour his house. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, so encourage him. So, job done. Dead men can tell no tales. It's over. He's covered all his tracks. The only one who could point the finger at him was Uriah the head out. Well, what about the servants of the king? Well, they saw her coming that day and they probably surmised something. But they're only servants of the household. What can they say? What can they do? But Joab was a different kettle of fish. He was his top general. Listen, do you think if those generals would have found out that David was sleeping with their wives? Do you think... I tell you, that would have caused something. That would have caused a rebellion within the ranks. He might have lost his throne right there and then. They might have wanted to kill him. But he's covered his tracks. It's over. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Hmm. I don't suppose for one moment that he told her about how he had concocted that whole thing to get her husband killed. Soldiers get killed on the battlefield all the time. It probably is the worst news that any wife could hear that their husband has been killed on the battlefront. Still happening to this very day. That knock comes to the door. And that knock came to Bathsheba's door. And it says she mourned, but I wonder I wonder in her mourning, was there a feeling of relief? Yes, she loved Uriah. Yes, he was her husband. Yes, he's been killed in battle, but she doesn't have to explain anything anymore. He's never, ever going to find out because he's dead. So there might have been some relief when she heard that also. And so... There we are, all tracks covered. Can be no comeback from this. Nobody will say anything. When her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And so, almost with undue haste, he married her. But the thing that David done displeased the Lord. As somebody said he looked all around, trying to hide his actions, but he forgot to look up. The Lord saw all and was really displeased. And so about a year passes. And in that year, in fact, if you were to read Psalm 51, Psalm 38, Psalm 32, you would see that during that year, even though he put on a front, and even though he had felt he had everything covered, there would never be any comeback, but guilt was inside nonetheless. Now, there's some commentators who say he didn't feel any remorse any guilt. But if you read those Psalms, Particularly Psalm 51, the psalm of repentance and the penitent psalm. You'll see that he talks about how he felt. The hand of the Lord was heavy on him. <sighs> he had difficulty sleeping at night. He probably was losing his appetite. He had to put on a front, but inside, inside, the guilt was there. and it was about to get worse. So a year passes. He's conducting his kingly business. No doubt he held court, as kings would do in those days. A lot of the really tough cases would come before the king. He'd have to make a decision. Uh, People would come maybe with business things that had gone wrong or murder or maybe adultery, all kinds of stuff that he had to deal with. And then one day, who appears before him but Nathan the prophet? He was a good friend, by the way. But when a prophet comes, he doesn't come to tickle your ears. And David knew when the prophet came, this can't be good if the prophet's coming. I can handle everybody else, but the prophet can't hide anything. The prophet, then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, and then he tells him this little kind of pastoral, rural story. But a little ewe lamb. And I'm sure when, when, when the Nathan the prophet appeared before David, I'm sure his heart nearly bounced out of his chest. I'm sure, I'm sure the fear gripped him because of the guilt, and this is the prophet of God. But then when Nathan starts to tell this little story, <sighs> he probably relaxed that. Hey, it's nothing. He's telling me a story about some rich man and this little ewe lamb, so it's nothing to do with me. <laughs> So he came to him and he said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. By the way, in eastern lands, dogs are treated as unclean animals. (coughs) And often in eastern lands, for a little pet they'd pick a lovely little lamb and they would allow the children and the family to rear that as a little pet that's what that's saying by the way and it grew up together with him and with his children it ate of his own food drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him and a traveller came to the rich man a traveller came to David that day on the balcony a thought came a traveler came. A traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the wayfaring man who would come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David, being a shepherd... So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. God knew exactly how to get to this man. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. That was according to the law. Hmm. He's indignant how dare whoever this rich man is, how dare he do that to this poor man? And Nathan said to David, you are the man. And I don't believe he thundered it because he loved David. He hated what he did, but he loved him. And I think he said to David, David, you are the man. You're the one that God's talking to today. You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. I think David's legs must have buckled under him at that point. I, I, I think at that point his heart just melted. He's exposed, he's caught, he's nowhere to run, he's nowhere to hide. The prophet's looking right in his eyes. God has spoken. What can he do? He's undone. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The first time in a year he has publicly acknowledged, I don't even think he privately acknowledged, but the first time he has publicly acknowledged, yes, I have sinned terribly before God. And it must have been a relief to get that out. It took a long time, long time in common, a year. A year of hiding, a year of sub a year of lies, manipulation, all kinds of stuff, getting deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin. And suddenly, the heart is exposed. And he truly, truly repents. Not just that he's caught on. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Technically, he had sinned against Uriah, sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against his own household, sinned against Israel. But at that moment, all of that's secondary to him because he knows I have sinned against the Lord. That's my greatest sin. And it was. And Nathan said to David, "The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die." You see, according to the law, Leviticus, Leviticus 2010, both David and Bathsheba should have died. They should have been stoned for adultery. That's how serious this was, and he knew it. But the Lord says, "Put away your sin, you shall not die." However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Ah. Wasn't going to get off scot-free. The consequences of his sin was going to follow him from this point on to the day he died. Even though he's forgiven. But he set a chain in motion. And the consequences would be great. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. And it became ill. David David therefore pleaded with God for the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Even though God said, I'll surely die. David thought, I know God's a merciful God. And I'm going to do everything in my power. To try to prevent this now. But he couldn't. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed her voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do us some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. David therefore said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and went up into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Now that also tells us that he truly repented. Because to go into the house of God and worship, he is fully admitting that all that has happened to him, that will happen to him, is completely and fully deserved. But the Lord is the Lord, and he will be worshipped. Whatever judgment the Lord's going to put on him, David said, I deserve it. So I'm still going to worship the Lord. The Lord's judgments are right and just. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And he requested they set food before him and he ate. And a servant said to him, what is this that you have done? You fast and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fast and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child might live? But now he is dead, why should I fast? can I bring him back again? And then he says these words. Uh, these are powerful words, by the way. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, you see, we read that as New Testament believers, and it doesn't mean an awful lot to us. We say, well, yeah, I know that somebody dies they can't come back to us but we will go to them but they didn't know that then in the Old Testament David saying something here that groundbreaking they didn't know that they had all kinds of ideas of what may or may not happen after you die even to this day Jewish people has all kinds of ideas what might happen if you, after you die we understand because we believe in the resurrection of Christ It's easy for us. We've got the New Testament. But David made this pronouncement. Just like Job. Job says, even though I die and my skin is eaten by worms. (laughs) But he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And one day I shall see him in the flesh. That was a powerful statement too. And so we could say that those two statements had been inspired by the Holy Spirit. And they were both right. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, which means peaceful. And now the Lord loved him, Solomon that is. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet. And he called his name Jedediah because of the Lord. Jedediah means beloved of the Lord. Now, again, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture. You would think just by reading that that whenever Uriah, sorry, whenever Bathsheba had that child and after a year it died, you would think the next child born was Solomon. At a casual reading, that's what it looks like. But that's not what happened. Because if you read in Chronicles, you'll see that they had four sons after that son died. And Solomon was the fourth son. In fact, the third son was called after Nathan the prophet. So he's the fourth son. So even if she had sons in quick succession, you're still talking about minimum four years, five, six, seven years before Solomon came along. And all those other sons were born. But the Lord loved Solomon. Not that he didn't love the rest, but the Lord loved Solomon. The Lord had something special for Solomon. And he did. He did. Because Solomon became the great king. The great king. At least the first half of his reign, before he got all the wives that turned him away from the things of God. But God had a special plan for Solomon. And so out of all of that mess and all of that hurt and all of that pain and there's a lot more I haven't told you which I'll mention quickly. There's this little baby that's born and Jedidiah is his name. Beloved of the Lord because <coughs> God truly loved him. The prophet said, the sword will never leave your house. And it didn't. Tamar, one of his daughters, got raped by her half-brother, Amnon. They both had the same father but different mothers. And he really wanted his half-sister and concocted a whole plan to get her And after he had got her, he despised her, wanted nothing to do with her, hated her. And David did nothing about it, even though he knew. What could he say after what he had done? Could he preach to him? I don't think so. You see, how we live can affect our kids. If we don't set an example, then what can we say? if they go off the rails. At least if we have set an example, we can hold our hands up and say, well, Lord, we did everything we know to do. But David couldn't say anything because he was just as bad. Absalom, his other son, he knew about it and he loved his full sister Tamar. And he let it go for two years, hoping, hoping perhaps his dad would deal with it, but his dad didn't deal with it. Absalom says, I'll deal with it. And he concocted a plan and got Amnon killed. And when he did that, then he fled and ran. For three years, he went to stay with his grandfather. And David was heartbroken. His daughter was raped. One of his sons is dead. His other son is in exile. He's run away from home. And David then, after three years, he, he, he loved absolutely. he wanted him to come back, and he sent for him to come back. And when he came back, when he can't believe this, when he came back, you'd think, well, he's going to reconcile, but he didn't. In fact, he didn't even let him stay in the palace. He wouldn't see him. How crazy is that? You know, David was a great warrior. He was a great minstrel. He was a great composer. He was a great writer. He was brave. He was courageous. But he wasn't a very good dad. He really wasn't. And because of that, Absalom began to despise his father. And he plotted to take his father's throne. And not only that, Ahithophel, Ahithophel, who was David's confidant, we mentioned him the other week. The one who says, We took sweet counsel together. We went to the house of the Lord together. He's lifted up his head against me. He signed it with Absalom. And he said to Absalom, Here's what you got to do. You want to get at your father? Here's what to do build a tent on top of the roof and get his concubines to come and have your way with every one of them in front of everybody. And he did. And David couldn't believe that he would do that. His own son. And that Hethophel, his closest friend, would side with him and tell him what to do. But the prophet said that's exactly what would happen, didn't they? We read that a moment ago. So things is really, really bad, aren't they? And then David, Absalom was a big guy, beautiful long hair black raven, black hair. Really, he was a standout type of a guy. He'd be like a Hollywood actor, this guy. And he, he, he stole the hearts of the men of Israel and came against his father. And David had to run, had to go into exile. His own son wanted to kill him. And after he was in exile, he heard that Absalom wanted to take his throne. And that warrior spirit rose up within David again. And he came back and he got Joab and if some of his men says, We're gonna deal with him. But he says, Body says, do not kill Absalom. I love Absalom, don't kill him. Even though he's done this, but don't kill him. And Joab thought, Yeah, right. I got a chance I'll kill him, and he did. Because Absalom took flight. And his long flowing hair, he was on a donkey. And his long flowing hair, as he, as he went underneath an oak tree, his hair caught in the branches. And the donkey went on, and he was hanging on the oak tree. And somebody came and told Joab, Hey, Absalom, he's hanging by his hair in an oak tree. And Joab took three spears and ten men, and he rammed the spears in him and killed him. And the young men attacked him. And when David heard it, his heart was broken. He cried and he wept for days. Absalom, my son, Absalom is dead. In fact, Joel had to go tell him to say, Stop this. You're demoralizing the people. He was a rascal. You're better off that he's dead. But it didn't help his heart, did it? Almost finished. He's an old man now. He's about 70. That was old those days. I'm just a spring chicken, aren't you? Sorry, Raymond. (laughs) But relatively speaking, and he's lying in his bed, and he's done, and he's freezing cold, and he marries a young woman to get in bed with him just to keep him warm. Honestly, that's all. Just Just to lie tight to keep him warm, to get some warmth into his body. Sally, when I get to about 75, I hope you lie tight to me. When I get old, you know. When I'm old like Raymond there, you know. (laughs) He's lying there. He's done. He's he's just done. He's just just a dying man. And then word came to him that another son, Adonai, he wants to take his throne. And Joab and Abiathar, the priest, get in on it. And they have a big feast where they're going to crown him king of Israel. And David doesn't know a thing about it. He's lying there in bed (laughs) freezing. True, you can read that. But Bathsheba found out. And Bathsheba reminded David, we didn't read this part, reminded David, hey, you said... Solomon our son he would be the one that would be on the throne and so she talked to Nathan and Nathan says you go in and tell him that and after you tell him I'll come in and back you up and they said to David David your other son's going to get crowned out there you better crown Solomon right now because if you don't he's not going to be king and so they did that and Solomon that's how he became king and David died To the day he died, literally, the sword never left his house. What a price to pay for a moment of stolen passion. What a price to pay. Many a man, many a woman, many a young person, many a single, has absolutely blighted their whole life for five minutes. big, big lessons to learn, isn't it? And particularly if we're married, let's keep ourselves pure. Let's not put ourselves in any compromising position because no matter how strong we feel we may be, the devil knows the weakness and he can exploit it as he did with David because that was David's weakness. So let's keep ourselves right you can't help the first look but we can help the second look and the third and the fourth somebody said if you see a beautiful girl you're driving down the street you can't help that first look but you don't drive around the block for the second look (laughs) then you're in trouble and that's what happened David so lessons to be learned amen that's what it's in the book for for us to be warned and not ever to go down that path. And if anybody has, all you can do is hold your hands up and repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. The consequences may may not be as great. You know, somebody says that no great Christian can sin a small sin. No great Christian can sin a small sin. The higher up the Christian ladder you go, as it were, in the public view, the greater your sin becomes, because more knows about it. Amen? Let's pray